Welcome to episode 15 of The Alec Hogg Show, a long-form audio biography where we delve into the lives of inspirational South Africans. Our guest in this episode is a third-world child, an author, marketer, entrepreneur, the product of authentic South African activists. His name, Gigi Alcock. Gigi Alcock grew up in a mud hut with no electricity or running water in a district selected precisely because of its medieval-type economy. An aspect of his upbringing shared with countryman Elon Musk was that from a young age he read copiously, mostly history and non-fiction. And today he says that was the great privilege that he had over the other kids in the Masinga district. This unusual childhood gives Alcock a unique perspective on the complexities of a homeland which, like him, straddles the first and third worlds. He's one of the most unusual people that I've ever met. And after listening to his story, you'll appreciate why. Gigi Alcock is with me in studio, one of the most remarkable South Africans, and I think that probably comes from your background. I first came across you yeah. and your family's story in Rian Milan's book, My Traitor's Heart, which was a global bestseller dedicated yeah. to your mother. Yeah, so um, I think at the time, I mean, when it came out would have been about 1984, 85 probably. You know, it was one of the first books to kind of expose the contradictions of the stories were told about South Africa, you know, which were typically anti-apartheid, everything, and apartheid was uh, bad, of course, which it was, but everything else was good. Um, and he kind of had these crazy South African stories that just changed the dynamic of the storyline. And one of them was about my parents and us growing up and my parents work in, in Msinga and KZN. Who, um, who were they and why did they go there? They were political activists and kind of community workers. And uh, they really believed my father was a very successful farmer in the Underberg district, owned lots of wonderful farms. And in his mid-40s um, kind of had this epiphany where he decided he couldn't live this life of this very rich um, white farmer. Did he, he inherit the farms? He didn't. He built them up himself. He was mm. part of a family that had farms in the area, but he he built up his own. He was part of the Liberal Party. He'd always been very um, politically um, active. And he'd been brought up by, by the maid and spoke fluent Zulu and kind of considered her more his mother than... His, his real mother, and when he went to visit the maid in a place called Polela, or near Bowa actually, everyone was um, starving, and he was a dairy farmer, and they were spilling the milk down the drains to keep the, the price up, or, or creating artificial um, shortages, and he just suddenly decided he couldn't do this, sold his farms to my <laughs> I never inherited these wonderful farms, <laughs> uh, bought a combi and, and travelled around doing a range of different work, being harassed permanently by the police, and started an organization called Kupugani, which uh, was one of the very first kind of, it was like a, a range of food products, powdered milk, uh, soya and stuff that that had shops in, at hospitals around the country and you people could buy this low-cost, high-protein and so on 
food and continued his political work. His friends were Gaja Butelezi, Ellen Payton, Peter Brown and, and these kind of people. And uh, yeah, and my mother was a journalist who was asked to go and interview this crazy guy. She was 20 years um, younger than him and she'd been one of the last people to report on Mandela's talk in uh, Edendale just before he was arrested outside Howick. So she was also quite politically active. And, and uh, Who did she work for? Oh, everyone, the Star, Daily News. Top journalist, then right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I guess the rest is history, but they, they moved to, to Msinga. They decided to find the, the worst possible place on the planet to do this work because my father said if we could transform a place that's really, really bad agriculturally and from an incomes perspective and so on, uh, we could, um, you know, that's an example for the rest of South Africa and Africa. And so they chose Msinga. And uh, a while ago, I said to someone who grew up in Amsinga, he said, ah, oh, that's the arsehole. I said, I said, yeah, that's the arsehole of the world. He said, no, 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 that's 30 k's up the rectum. So <laughs> it gives you an idea of Amsinga. And they built a mud hut with no running water, electricity in the community. Why it's, is it so bad there? It's always been an incredibly arid area. I mean, the, the, the plains that uh, fly between Joburg and Durban always divert in summer around Amsinga because the... Thermals are so big, everyone spills their coffee. It was also highly populated because, because uh, most of the forced removals, in fact, my, my name came from my parents fighting the government and, and hence they were fighting GG, the government garage. And, on the number uh, plates. On the number plates. And uh, anyway, I was named after Skatska GG, the time of GG. So they were fighting forced removal, but a lot of the people who were removed from places around Ladysmith and Greytown and Moy River and, and, and so on uh, were all pushed into Msinga. So it became one of the most highly populated, yet incredibly arid and hot areas. It became the centre for dacha growing in South Africa. Uh, most of Durban poison comes from there. They say it's so strong because of the huge heat. I mean, we get 42, 45 degrees temperatures in summer. Also the centre for uh, tribal warfare, so huge faction fights. Um, and, and that area, the Mtembu and the Mtunu tribes are the largest tribes in, in South Africa and, and were known as the most warlike tribes in South Africa. They fought Shaka and beat him at one stage and, and in fact they fought with the British against the Zulus at, at Isandlwana because they saw themselves as Zulu culturally but against that. So, so you had this tribal group who incredibly... I guess, uh, angry, aggressive type people who were then now pushed together, incredibly well armed. I mean, we grew up, we'd sometimes be having supper and we'd have to sit on the floor of um, the little kind of um, room we lived in because there was uh, tracer rounds going overhead and automatic fire and stuff like that. As, so, as little boys? <laughs> as little kids. So, I mean, I wrote quite a lot about in Third World Child, but I mean, mm. we grew up, um, you know, one of our first, Skills. In fact, I say my primary skills have never been to varsity or stick fighting and goat herding. You actually <coughs> lived that life. Com completely. Did your parents not think we'd at least give our kids education? So my mother taught us at home under an acacia tree. And um, we spent most of our life just, you know, our, our daily lives um, hanging out with the local Zulu kids. We were brought up completely as Zulu kids. We're incredibly poor. We had nothing in terms of modern conveniences. We washed in the river. My mother's uh, kitchen was a, a Kader gas cylinder under a, a tree. 
you know, we didn't have anything like fridges and stuff. And um, Did you yeah. feel hard done by? I mean, there were times later on in my life that I kind of said, you know, there was no glory in poverty, and that's hence I, f- I fled into capitalism because I was for a long time a community worker and a political activist. But at the time, I mean, it was an incredibly rich life. You know, we had with our, uh, surrounded by, you know, hundreds of friends. We were completely accepted in these Zulu communities. We, we weren't seen as, as white kids, you know. We were just Gigi and Makonya. And because uh, my brother's name's Makonya, and <clears throat> we um, we grew up uh, really part of that community. We were disciplined. We were regimented in terms of stick fighting, in terms of this group fights that group, and so on. It was a very rich life. We, in many ways, never realised how poor we were. I mean, we would go to town and we'd have uh, meat, and we'd say, "What died?" Because <laughs> the only time we we had meat was when something died. It was rich in other things. So, so, and, and, and I look back on it now. I mean, many of the skills I learned and, and understanding of culture and lifestyle and even business came to a large extent from, from understanding how, how people lived in, in those spaces. I, I love your books and we'll get on to Cosinomics in a moment, but Third World Child, which talks about your background and, yeah. and really is so unusual. But I've often thought when you read some of the academics who's, who, who have theories that different societies evolve at different paces. Now, here you are coming from, if you like, a first world society with your mom and dad, very first world uh, occupations. They go very deeply into the third world. Yeah. Did you find there were huge differences in the way that perhaps they brought you up or had brought you up or just spoke around the table with your friends who would have come from a different parentage, at least, if not a different environment? I think my father was incredibly strict about bringing us up without any privileges that the other kids wouldn't have. I mean, I often tell a story about losing my tooth and uh, putting it on my slip slop next to my mattress on the floor and getting five cents, you know, um, for from the tooth fairy. And, and a while later, my friend Makosonke, who'd seen this, did the same at home next to his dancey, his grass mat that he slept on. And uh, for weeks, he didn't get his five cents. So he came around and we we're all having this long chat about it. And, and my friend... Uh, Ask again, he said, you know what it is? It said, it's the Ndelezi. There's an orchid you have um, in, in the home that protects the home. He said, and the Ndelezi protects the home. It'll stop the tooth fairy coming to. And the other guy said, no, it's the Mviti branch. There's a, um, a, a tree called Mviti, which protects against lightning that you put in the, in the eaves of the house. And he said, no, the Mviti branch, it'll stop the tooth fairy like it stops lightning. And my father heard the story and said, uh, and brought us, heard us talking and called us together and told us the real story of the tooth fairy. And that was the last time we ever got five cents for our, our tooth, you know. So, you know, so there were many things like that where we were completely brought up. The only advantages we had is that my parents were very literate. And so we read a huge amount. And, and you know, my father brought us up very strictly with this kind of sense of, different cultures so so we'd uh, read and and learn about the Boer generals and Dennis Raitz and, and Jan Smuts and Louis Boerta who he, he thought were wonderful as well as Subukwe and um, Dela and then also Shaka and Tetuayo and so on so we were brought up and Sekokuni and stuff like that so we were brought up with this huge awareness of of um, and, and we read from really young we were reading 
history and, and stuff like that. Uh, and I think that was a huge gift. That was the advantage we had in essence over the other kids is we had this great literate upbringing. <laughs> we didn't have a TV, so that's all we did. You know, mm. we played Monopoly and Snap and, and Rummy and, and read books, you know. So, and and um, they were primarily his, history books or, or um, non-fiction books and stuff. So we were brought, that was a huge advantage. But everything else, I mean, we were as poor as the other kids. We we were cold in winter. We got uh, lice and scabies <laughs> like all the other kids. And um, I got typhoid when I was uh, about uh, 12, I think. And um, I was very sick. And, and my father took me to the local hospital, which is the Church of Scotland Hospital in Tugela Ferry, because we even went to the local government hospitals. And, and <laughs> there was no like going to, in those days, the white hospitals or whatever. And uh, when we went to the hospital, the doctor McCutcheon sent us to, uh, said my father had to take me to Gray's Hospital. They had isolation units there. And we race off to Gray's, and, and when we got there, the people said there's no way that he's got uh, typhoid because a white person hasn't had typhoid in 50 years. So they phoned Dr. McCutcheon. He said, listen, they look white, but they're definitely not. He's got typhoid. <laughs> they drink from the river. They wash in the river. And, uh, of course, I did have typhoid. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. When I moved to Johannesburg, I moved here uh, without a job. I started as a bricklayer. Um, in in Jeppe, working for someone, I you know I serviced cars, I welded burglar guards, I did anything I could, because mm-hmm. um, we had nothing, and and uh, so we had no real advantage beyond that kind of literate um, upbringing that that we'd had. Your father was a real liberal; he lived it. Yeah. Uh, did the other liberal? And people forget the Liberal Party in the nineteen sixties was calling one man one vote when. Yeah. Today's uh, so-called liberal parties uh, were very much on the qualified franchise route. So they were way, way, way ahead of their time. Yeah. And, of course, got banned for it and thrown into jail and yeah. all kinds of things. But did the other liberals, did Alan Payton, Peter Brown, did they come and visit your father? Did they, yeah. did they say, well, you know, these guys are the authentic, yeah. real thing. Maybe we should be more like them. Yeah. Look, I can't talk at a, at, a, at a whole group, but I can say many of those, like for instance, Peter Brown, until he died, he, he was a, call it a trustee of the project. He'd, he'd um, drive down once a week, once a month, whatever. So, you know, people like that. And, and the Liberal Party, so my parents, Gaji Butelezi, Umango Sutu Butelezi was my father's best man at, at uh, their wedding. And they had the reception at Alan Payton's house in uh, Hillcrest, I think. And they couldn't have alcohol because blacks and whites in the same room couldn't have alcohol because, you know, the blacks wouldn't behave or something. But the Liberal Party actually chose to disband because there was a law passed that you couldn't have white and black people in that party. So I think in many ways they lived that. And and throughout the years, my father would use people like Helen Sussman in Parliament to raise questions about the issues they were facing in Msinga and stuff like that. So, so I think you know to a large extent they had an ongoing support from individuals in in those um, spaces. They were also seen as controversial because they were the extreme fringe. You know, they had foregone all of the luxuries and all of the benefits, and they were unapologetic about it. You know. So my father was often very critical of people in the NGO, you know, um, anti-apartheid sector because they weren't living their lives. They were raising money, earning money, living much better lives. They weren't living in a township. And he paid the ultimate sacrifice. 
Yeah, so he was eventually assassinated by the police in uh, 1983, and it was a whole setup. I mean, it's a long story, but in essence, he he became such a thorn in the local police's side that uh, they set up a whole thing, and it was never. Eventually, in fact, um, one of the senior policemen said to Rian, who was researching at Rian Milan, said, "If if a policeman are investigating policemen, you will never get a a, a result." You know, and then my mother stayed there. She she refused to move. In the mud hut. She still lives in the mud hut. I, I visited her last weekend, and she's living in the mud hut. She walks to the river. She uses a candle for light. She's this incredibly literate person. Friends? Yes, she has um, friends. I mean, in the community, she's loved and, uh, as, you know, Gorko, and friends around the country. Um she just refuses to leave there, you know, so they have to visit her. But she, she's, she's, a, she's a writer. She's writing up a lot of stuff about it and, and also runs a craft project and so on. And, and my brother's running a, a community, an agricultural development project there with goat rearing and so on. So, Are you the odd one so, out then? <coughs> they still in a Missinga yeah, and you're in so, Johannesburg <laughs> talking to audiences of hundreds. Well, you were before COVID. Yeah, yeah. I initially believed I was going to be a community worker and going to continue that, and I did. I, I, I lived there in Msinga, in the mud hut, um, for a year almost. Um, and then I was summoned for military training, which I'm not a pacifist. And <laughs> growing up in a Zulu community, it's hard to be claim you're a pacifist, and I had no religious kind of convictions against it. So, so I went to the army, and I loved the army. I ended up causing all sorts of trouble and and uh you know. what did they think about you there you you <laughs> dealing with afrikaners and people who perhaps yeah. thought apartheid was great look i was i was fit as hell i loved the army i mean you know you had these jokes of people going to the army from you know hillbilly families and and saying wow the food is wonderful we sleep on a mattress i was that guy you know <laughs> i was like the food was great and um we had hot and cold showers and you know we ran a lot but jeez i was fit as anything so I just carried on running, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I went to 6i uh, in Grahamstown, an infantry unit, and I did incredibly well. And the guys actually, I was one of their top troops. And, and when I eventually, they decided to send us to, to Duncan Village in East London and to do township duty, I actually said that I would uh, go to Namibia, but I wasn't going to go into a township because I had such moral issues about a military force in a, in a civilian space. And um, so I refused to do township duty. At what age was this? As the youngest guy in my unit, I, I, I matriculated at the age of sixteen, and so I was—I went in July intake. I was uh, sixteen and a half. And uh, how did you know at that stage? Was it part of your upbringing, part yeah. of reading, part of being sensitized to the real South African story, perhaps? I mean, I'd say in my kind of high school years and stuff, I was very, very politically aware and. So when I finished primary school, um, the government said to my parents that uh, there was they, they wouldn't allow us to continue with homeschooling because the kids had to be exposed to other kids, meaning white kids. And my father said, well, they're exposed to hundreds, if not thousands, of, of kids in the valley. And the government said no, and they, you had to get permission those days to, um, to do homeschooling, and they withdrew the permission. And my father was offered by one of his friends kind of bursary, I guess, for us to go to, or me to go to Michael House. And he flatly turned it down and said, um, you know, we need to learn of life as it is. So they sent us to Greytown High School, which had a complete mix of the greatest people and the most conservative people. And some of the people were policemen's uh, sons who, who hated my father. And uh, some of the, I mean, Were Greytown. you bullied? 
No, I wouldn't say we were bullied. I would say, but we were kind of harassed about our beliefs and stuff, you know. So there was teasing and, and you know, my father must have a black wife and my mother have a, you know, and that it never ended, you know. If mm. we, so we had lots of that and a couple of the teachers were mean as, as anything and stuff. But overall, no, I mean, nothing that ever... I mean, really, kind of rocked our boat in, in the sense. And but being and politically aware at Greytown High School <coughs> and living in Msinga yeah. <laughs> uh, must have been quite interesting when you went home. It was more interesting when we went to school, you know, because we, we were weekly boarders, so Friday we'd be back in, in Msinga and that's where we were happy. And we'd go to school and, and then we'd t- bring friends home and they, <laughs> they would be having to wash in the river and, and uh, in this uh, single kind of room mud hut. Uh, live with us so but I think Eric you know I I think there's often a lot made about people being discriminated against and stuff like that we really believed in what we believed in number one and number two we'd been brought up tough you know so I don't really think you know people people also admired it you know there's a grudging admiration and and in school I can say in my class there were people who were like really anti us but they were always like yeah well we were the brains in the in the class and when I, when I refused to do township, um, a township duty in army, my commandant called me and said, you're my best troop, what are you doing? Are you mad? You know, I was like, and he actually then recommended giving me a compassionate transfer to be closer to my mother. And they eventually, long story short, I ended up in, in a military intelligence. But it was because of that. I wasn't a typical liberal, you know. Mm. I, was, I loved the army. I loved the bushcraft. I loved the shooting and the running. Same in, in school, you know. I, I was uh, one of the top cross-country runners. I ran barefoot because that's how we ran in Msinga. And there were no thorns and rocks in Greytown, you know. Military intelligence. Yeah, that must so, have been interesting. Well, yeah, I was lucky because I was moved from well very quickly to Bureau of Natural Resources, which was a KwaZulu Parks board, and I spent my time driving around a place like Umfalozi or the outskirts of Umfalozi and other game reserves, understanding the kind of impact, the kind of issues that the communities had with the game reserves. And I had to write a monthly report about PBs, the Plaslika Bufalking, you know, the local population, and uh, I'd write. Chiefs love the army and uh, the people love the army and they loved my reports and, and sent me back out there, you know, and I could grow my hair long. And <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I can't say I, I suffered, you know, I, I did DB for not uh, following the rules for a while, but uh, what do they do there? They make you run, you know. <laughs> so. You're listening to the Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. I can't say it's a, it was a life of suffering or anything like that. I mean, to a large extent, I made, a, I made the best of it. But at the same time, when I was a kid, I said to my father, will you send us to university? And uh, he said, um, we'll never afford to send you to university, but we'll bring you up ready for a life and prepared for a life in Africa. And I think to a large extent, that was one of the, the great things that was true, that, that uh, he prepared us for a life in Africa. Um, we weren't in a rarefied atmosphere. We grew up with a lot of skills that, that were maybe unconscious skills, you know, this understanding of lifestyle and culture and, and that kind of thing, and also being exposed to typical South African society. And I think that, I really think that we should still have a national service as an example, because I think one of the great things about that, it exposes you to the, all the layers of society, and both Great Town High School and... Um, Michael House. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Greater and High School and and, uh, um, and and the army really exposed me to everyone from from we had a Karoo farmer who 
who, uh, said, you know, we said, how many sheep do you have? And he said, yeah, I never count them because they don't get more when you count them. <laughs> so from that to, to um, you know, so, so the whole range of people. And I think that our society is this huge diversity and, and the ability to cross between conservative Afrikaans farmers all the way through to hawkers in a township and, uh, you know, educated intellectuals in between and whatever it might be is, is one of the great advantages that we had is that we, we could cross these great barriers we, or divides we have in our country. And I think that there's not enough of that exposure of people to different parts of our society. Where did you realise in your journey that that was such a great asset? this ability to walk with princes and paupers in a society that is so diverse as ours? Mm. In some ways, probably when I was in the military, because we arrived there and, I mean, anyone who's done military and most of South African white males have, you know, we arrived in this, like, you know, there was everyone. I mean, there were people from Michaelas and there were people from from this Karoo farm and, and we had a guy from Mamagabiri and you couldn't, you know, and, and uh, we had this great mix. I was quite comfortable within that and I never made, I mean, they'd laugh at me because um, they, they spoke Khoza in, in Grahamstown, but, uh, you know, Khoza and Zulu is very similar. And so I would chat to all the staff, like the black guys in the, in the kitchens and I always got extra food <laughs> and stuff like that. And uh, one of the guys one was desperate to get uh, Dacha, and uh, I managed to make a plan for him, and, and he'd sneak through the fence to the guys that I'd connected him with who came from the school. The, the, the township was literally across the valley from the base. And, and so I kind of realized, hey, you know, like this is, um, I could blend into these environments. And they understood right from the start, you know, uh, my politics were, were different. Um, you know, they have the political education classes, and I'd always argue with the, the, the officer sharing it. Uh, so, so that was the start. But I think the real place I learned that was was when I started really getting into business because I, I did feel this ability to be in a township on one level and then sitting in, across from a board of directors or CEO of a top business on, on, the other, on the other hand. But it must be frustrating as well, given that you have a deeper understanding than the people that you are engaging with who often are living in bubbles. It's probably one that was, particularly in my marketing business, was one of the biggest, biggest frustrations was that you could, you know, particularly in marketing, marketing is a crazy business. Marketing is where the most junior people make the biggest decisions and, and, and make the biggest um, spending decisions as well. So you have a junior brand manager or brand manager making a decision that should be being made by the marketing director. So I could be interacting with the marketing director and we'd be on the same page and the marketing director's got 10 or 15 years experience and then we'd be talking about ABC brand and um, you're working with a brand manager who's like, forget the age, whose real experience and exposure to the society that they're marketing to, whether they're black or white, it's irrelevant. They just don't have that. And then you're saying, well, this is what we should do and they're like, going, well, have you considered Facebook? <laughs> you <know? laughs> and you're talking, you know, a, a product for, for low-income people in shack settlements. And, I mean, I, I continue. I, can, I choose now to only work with businesses where I'm working with the decision-makers. And my first question to people is, you know, all of the great success stories, as I consider them, that I, I was involved in, 
were always because I had a brave client and I had a senior client who was able to make those decisions. And so my first question, how brave are you? You know, it was never my insights. It was taking my insights and getting someone who had the bravery and the insight, whether they, whether they shared that insight, but they had enough sus to say, it makes sense what you're saying and let's try that out. And that's been a huge frustration over the 20 years I've, I've been in the marketing industry probably more, 25 years. Um, so, so I mean, I think that, and that continues to be an issue in, in South Africa. And, and I mean, probably get to that just now, but when I, I sold my business Minanawe and, and I've gone on my own and, and, and half of what I do now is invest in opportunities in this informal sector because no one's doing that. And they're not doing it because there's no data, you know, and there's no business case that uh, protects them. You know, no one was ever fired for designing the Corolla, you know, but ask Elon Musk. But, uh, you know, and, and I think that that's a huge frustration that, that we have these massive, massive opportunities, but we don't, to a large extent, explore them. And, and, and um, because we, we're too timid to, to try something new, try something different, and generally the people who are making those decisions don't have the authority or the seniority to Or to the insight. Them. You have a unique insight. What kind of but investments when, would you make? Well, when you see the in, you need to, you know, so, so they don't have the insight, but when they get the insight, they question it because it doesn't have data behind it. Mm. <laughs> or have you done research? I want to see the research that proves that the insight, now the insight by its very nature is a qualitative thing. It is not that 89% people think this or that. How do you connected. stay connected with that <clears throat> part of our economy? Look, I'm very active in that in terms of, of the work I do. So I currently do some a, a fair amount of kind of, call it freelance consultancy or activations type work uh, for a couple of select businesses. And that means I spend time in the townships, even over lockdown, I was um, in those spaces. And yeah, you've got to be careful, but because um, you're probably the only person with a mask, or certainly at certain stages. But I, I spend a lot of time there. I've invested either sweat equity or, or, or money into into a few little businesses. Everything from one of them is a is a source business, uh, creating a range of called Soweto sources, and uh, it's basically kind of really township flavored, relevant um, sources in the fast food township fast food sector. Following on my palmlet cheese kind of um, thing, the business we built. So big opportunities in that space. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, if I'm creating a range of sources, I'm going in and I'm visiting people and taste this and try that. And, you know, so I'm actually plodding the streets. And I've also got a very, very powerful network of, of township people who I've worked with over the last 20, 25 years who are drawn and they always sending me stuff because they know, you know, we've, we've spent so much time, you know, little gems of have you, you know, you won't believe this is the new thing that's happening and, and here's a new trend or they're sending me pictures and perpetually getting pictures of stuff happening. Um, over lockdown, you know, um, all the car washes and, and, uh, Fast food outlets were, were closed and uh, then they were sending me pictures of Metro police cars being washed in a car wash or a line of army guys outside a fast food outlet that was ostensibly closed, you know. So is it that bad? Is it that brash? The reality is that in the townships, the laws that are considered to be irrational, you know, like Woolly selling roast chicken, are just ignored. And the laws that are seen as rational are generally followed. And I think you're talking about a society that doesn't conform 
to rules just because the rules are there, because they're able to. You know, our societies, are, the biggest mistake is that our issues are about enforcement. It's not about the rules, it's about enforcement. And in a township environment, enforcement relies on the fact that the community believes that there's some credibility and validity to those rules. And so, I mean, we've seen the masks pick up now. I mean, the week of before Christmas, there wasn't a person wearing a mask. First week of January, I, went, uh, I was in Soweto and there was practically not a single person not wearing a mask. You know, so there are certain adherences like that. But I think, you know, like, for instance, the fast food outlets, you're talking about, a, you know, the government made these stupid things right at the beginning of lockdown. They said no, the fresh fruit markets couldn't operate. It was bizarre, you know, so you could get into a taxi and, and ride a taxi to shop, right, to go and buy your cabbage. But you couldn't walk 20 meters outside of your house to the street corner and buy the cabbage from Madlamini. I mean, it's bizarre, you know. And so, so people just flout those regulations. And I actually wrote a series um, at the time of the strictest lockdown called Excavating Silence. And it was really about highlighting these things. And I was on a task force of, of the Business for South Africa, also trying to, to highlight some of these, particularly as they pertain to the space. So, you know, from a, from a township business perspective, 80% of them are residentially based. They're either in the street or in the home or in the back room of a home. And uh, they are generally, they can close the front door and operate out of the back door. And this is what happened. You speak about enforcement. In a very sophisticated society like the United States, they enforce pretty much everything, excepting when, when the enforcers attack the capital. Yeah. Um, but in a society like South Africa, where the enforcement... Most people would see that there's a way around it, either through opening your wallet or because you're never really going to go to jail because of the criminal justice system. Where do you stand on, on, on that basis? In other words, are there too many stupid laws that they can't be enforced? Or are we just a, a lawless society from what you see in your understanding? And even if they were very good laws, that people don't follow them because laws generally aren't credible. So look, I think there's a lot of, particularly around, let's just talk in the last year, there's a lot of laws and regulations, if you want, that, that people have ignored because they don't have credibility. But at the same time, I think that there's misconception that the township environment is this lawless mass of GBV and, and drunken debauchery and so on. And the reality is that those, that's, that's a media reflection of of, of a small proportion of it because, you know, it bleeds, it leads. So you don't write about good things. And I think you underestimate the extent or people underestimate the extent to which townships have become suburbs. And within those townships, there are far more self-regulatory mechanisms where people conform to norms and, and regulations, not just because the police are enforcing it, but because those are socially accepted. There's a lot of social pressure around it. You know, we're talking about townships. Or the vast proportion of people in townships go to church, far more percentage-wise, and adhere by the values espoused by the church. And, um, you know, choir music's a bigger music than, than, than rap or, or, or quiet or whatever it might be. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. The reality is that there's been an incredible transformation of life, lifestyle, standards of living and stuff in the township environment. More than 80% of our population live in formal housing. 
more than 40% of our population are one or two member family households. So, you know, 40% of our households in, in South Africa are small households. We still have these perceptions that township households are 10 or 15 people. Now, yeah, there may be, but that's a historical bias and an anecdotal bias. And uh, I think we both read Factfulness, you know, Factfulness, the book was about looking at the real facts and, and, and the trends and, and not being trapped in some of this. And I think that that's the, the really big mistake. I mean, there's not a township that I could go to now that I can't tell you has transformed dramatically in the last 20 years. From Soshenguve to even Kailicha to, you know, and everyone uses Alex as an example of townships, please, you know, it's an outlier. Uh, you know, Kwamashu Mlazi, you're talking about suburban houses, formal houses, smaller families, high income, really good lifestyles, little gardens, and, and so on and so forth. Cars, there's traffic issues now. And in uh, middle of, class. Yeah, it's, they're middle class. But doesn't that make you hopeful about the future of this Absolutely. country? Absolutely. I'm, I'm the most uh, optimistic about this country, not because I think that the. Um, the government's going to make a difference, but because the middle classes in South Africa, particularly the black middle classes, are going to be transformative. We cannot have a, a Zimbabwe because they don't have a middle class, so that allows it. You know, the peasant is not affected by a lot of the issues, but the middle class person in Soweto or Protea Glen or uh, Spreitview is directly affected by, by these changes. But why don't they vote against the corruption that uh, well, that What's we the see? alternatives? Is that the is that the reason? That's why they don't. It's mine as well. You know, mm. <laughs> so mm. I came out of the ANC and and UDF, and and uh, I believe I'm I'm fairly rational about it, and 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 the options are limited. You know, uh, so and I think that there's no real alternatives. And I can tell you, coming out of the call it the struggle, if that's what you want to call it, that I was really committed to and invested in from a personal perspective and family perspective. It's very difficult to break with the kind of struggle. And to do that break, ask the Republicans. You know, mm. To mm. do that break, there needs to be a real convincing alternative. Otherwise, you know, it's like big brands. Big brands always given a second chance and a third chance and so on. So that's, that's a tragedy. We don't really have a, an alternative. But I do think that the, the, uh, the population, that middle classes are going to be the pressure that's going to force people like the ANC to self-correct. Having a command of Zulu, African languages as you do, yeah. is a huge advantage to friends of mine who are in the same fortunate situation that you're in. And just, yeah. just anecdotally, we were at a RPM conference at Sun City, 1,500 people. And Mick Goss, who's a farmer from yeah. KZN, stood up and, and his first 15, 30 seconds were in Isisulu. Yeah. And it was a completely different reaction from that audience to the speaker after him who just spoke English. Yeah. Do you find that as well in, in your interaction with the vast kind of majority of South Africans? Look, 100%. I must say that often... I deliberately actually speak English because I do not want that to be the, the starting point. And I think that it's often overestimated as a, a differentiator or an access point is, is your language. I mean, you know, I've... So you wouldn't advise young kids to become fluent in Zulu, Sutu, Tswana... Young so, white kids, I'm talking yeah, about, yeah, who look, generally would speak English or an Afrikaans. I mean, I've, I've kind of forced my kids to... I've got 
to two daughters, Zandi and Gonsi, and I've uh, not only given them Zulu names, but I've kind of forced them to 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 do Zulu. And and the problem, sad thing is that the Zulu they learn at school, you can hardly a person on the street will understand it. It's a tragedy, but it's like teaching Shakespearean English to to people in in South Africa. But I do think that there's a value in it. But I can tell you that. In the next 10 years, there won't be a person speaking fluent African language, black or white. The spoken language, uh, I talk about the kind of lingua franca and, and the colloquial language. If you listen to people, Zulu or Sutu or Klaus or whatever, in, in uh, any of the townships you want, there's such a lot of English mixed in with the local language. And very quickly, um, we will have, or we're having, this new language, which is a bit of a combination of, of elements, which I think is, is great. You know, it's, it's a, I'm not a purist. It's the language of the streets for me has always been more important. When I arrived from Msinga and I would be in Soweto, people would be like, pardon, <laughs> these were Zulu people because my Zulu was such deep Zulu. And now, um, you know, and, and now I do a mix of, of English and Zulu. Mm. And in fact, Afrikaans is a vast amount of the um, colloquial language that's spoken. And if you said to people that's Afrikaans, they say no, 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 it's not. You know, it's mm. it's a, it's just the spoken language. So let me counter that by saying I think it's a fantastic thing if people could learn, but you're never going to learn it later on in life. I, I've I've done this with Sutu, and and my Sutu is relatively good because it's in many ways similar to Zulu, same grammar, uh, but I'll never be fluent, despite the fact that I spend my time in those environments. A because I can speak English and B because I speak a mix of Zulu and Sutu and whatever and I can so it's it's incredibly difficult to learn a language. I I I think it'll be great, but but it's 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 a, it's an it's impractical that people are gonna get to that level. I just, I think that the greater thing is about understanding different lifestyles and different and that thing I mentioned earlier, kind of levels of society. And I think if people were more exposed to each other across these these barriers, you know, already, you know, you have a big a difference between black kids growing up in suburbs and black kids in the townships. And people tell you, you know, there's a gassy person and that person there's a coconut or whatever. So cheese, cheese boy, cheese girl, whatever. So so there already is these gaps and those aren't those aren't created by Racial. I mean, my kids go to a private school in Kailami, and they've spent more time in a township than many of the black kids in the same school as mm. them. You know? So I think there's better ways of crossing divides. Gigi, if you look 10 years out, you are optimistic about South Africa. Yeah. Uh, you, I think a lot of that is centered in what you said earlier, that there is a middle class, maybe in the informal market, that not too many people are taking paying attention to. How are you seeing this country develop in the next 10 years, given that we still have this sweet spot of of first world, highly sophisticated business on the one hand, but with a growing move towards the informal market, which you've spoken and written a lot about? Sure. So I think I'd like to separate between, I mean, I'd call it gasinomics, but um, the gasi being the township market. And then I think within that you have the informal market and generally they, they cram together. But a lot of the township economy is not informal. It's actually relatively formal in terms of how it operates, you know, a, a fast food outlet that's uh, turning over a million rand a month and, uh, you know, making 20% margin and and living in a massive house and and driving a beamer is not an informal business although it may be seen as that 
So I think let's differentiate between the, the township and the typical informal, informal, like a little spaza shop or a hawker and stuff like that. And then obviously the more kind of formal, formal business side. And I think that I increasingly see this growth of this hybrid economy. And in a sense, it's because, you know, take some credit for it. I think, you know, some books like Gasinomics and Gasinomic Revolution have exposed this massive sector, which in, that, that uh, has always been there. Mm. I mean, it's called the unseen economy or the invisible economy, but it's not invisible to the people within it. You know, it's invisible to outsiders. But I think there's that realization of that. I think that the economy has meant this this kind of kind of realization of of this the hawker who was selling vegetables under a bridge in downtown Joburg is now selling the same vegetables in the street in um in Santon, you know, and that little food caravan that was doing quarters and I'm a platey, you know, again in, in the industrial area is now on Ravonia Boulevard you know, <laughs> and doing very well. Um so so this this emergence of this informal economy into our formal economy has kind of opened people's eyes to it and I think there's more and more people realizing that and not only myself and writing about it and and so on so I believe that this hybrid economy is is going to grow I also think that uh, lockdown has fast-tracked this acceptance of this informal economy uh, when lockdown happened, the uh, when the government said that the hawkers couldn't go to the fresh produce market, the fresh produce market, which is owned by the municipality, which turns over 8 billion rand a year, lost 40% of their turnover in two days. And suddenly there's like, you know, these are big customers. Suddenly the municipality is saying, geez, we're losing a lot of money because of the hawkers. Suddenly everyone's sitting up and saying, thank God for the hawkers. The same with the wholesale sector, when they were saying no spazers couldn't operate. And suddenly, you know, that's a 158 billion rand sector that goes through wholesalers. Suddenly, suddenly a realization that, okay, ShopRite's important, but not on its own. We've got, also got the sector. So the other thing is I laugh at all my friends in the kind of suburbs. They're always saying, yeah, you know about this informal sector. Tell us about it. I said lockdown forced everyone into the informal sector. You needed cigarettes. You bought them from the you know the, the the security guard or car guard in the in the car park. You got your wine from some little thing. You needed your hair done. You went to Lorraine down the road, who had a you know who was not operating from a hair salon in Michelangelo. She was now operating from her backyard. You know, and so it forced a lot of us to kind of think differently about this. And and people are going into businesses, baking biscuits and and doing whatever. I mean, I see it on all the fancy Facebook things in Kalami. People doing things that that they were forced to do. So lockdown and the, the kind of crunch of that has also forced people to think differently about just having a job or whatever. So I think that that this this informal sector is going to be fast-tracked. Government's opening its eyes more and more to it. Corporates, businesses are saying, how do we penetrate this sector more? Just to close off with, you said you grew up reading a lot. Yeah. If you were to pass on some knowledge to a young South African who isn't going to be finding their future somewhere else in the world, but they're going to be here. Yeah. What, how do they re-educate themselves, if you like? What do they, where do they even start understanding better? Because if you don't understand your past, you can hardly know your future. Yeah. I mean, I think... <laughs> what books? Yeah, give give yeah. us a couple of ideas. On, you mean on, apart from my books? <laughs> well, your books are a given. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I'd be thinking about 
Can I rather say this, that, so, so, I mean, I'll just give you some books that I've always kind of almost thought were my biblical books about how establishing um, my things. And one of them was Dennis Rates, which was Commando. The other mm-hmm. one was Washing of the Spears, I think mm-hmm. it's Donald Morris. TV Bullpen, those kind of books as um, well. Scram- Scramble for mm-hmm. Africa. And I think so, yeah, so some of those I, uh, that I kind of always have on my shelf, I think Rian Malan's uh, My Traitor's Heart is, 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 is an amazing a book about that. There's another amazing book uh, called um, In a Different Time by Paul Harris about the kind of transition and, and so on. I think that there's a, you know, from kind of changing our perspective about society I and mean, some of the, the more recent books I've read, one is obviously Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Uh, the other one is Everybody Lies, I forget the guy's name, about the internet and and it's quite extraordinary because it just shows you how, you know, using internet and stuff. I'm reading an extraordinary book at the moment called What Technology Wants, which actually talks about the convergence of, of um, evolution and technology. It makes you think a lot about where things are going, particularly we're looking at digital and online and all of these kind of things at the moment. I just think also that people need to get beyond the media and what we're reading in the media and I, I read it all the time, and, and, and that puts me in an instant depression. But I think that moving beyond, that's what I loved about that factfulness book, was that it really moved us beyond looking at media and anecdotal stories. And I think that that's such an important thing, is that, yes, there's this poor granny and Alex, and she's got seven children, and they're not eating and stuff like that, but she is not representative of the entire population. She represents 5% of our population. How do we understand the real nature of of our society? Because it represents A, opportunity, and B, it gives us a better sense of where we really are in the country, where, where, where are we sitting? And, and, and I end up with these huge arguments with people because I'm saying things aren't so bad. And things are not so bad. If 80% or more of people live in formal dwellings, that's a brick or a block house, we don't have 60% of people in shack settlements. Yes, Elmsamawetu in Western Cape burns down and it's terrible and they don't have running water and stuff. But Elmsamawetu, while it may dominate the news, is what? Maybe 10,000 households. There's 250,000 households in Soshenguve that... Uh, are living in formal dwellings. So let's let's change that dynamic and really let's look through the media. And media is wonderful, but make no mistake, and those stories must be told. But let's get beyond that, especially as business people, and actually look at the realities of our society, the reality of, of demographics, the reality of, of economic activity. You know, if, if 8 billion rands going through the Joburg Fresh Produce Market and 40 to 60% of that is going into the informal sector. Shouldn't you be sitting up and actually having a look at that as opposed to, you know, holding onto your head and saying, oh, whoa, our economy's stuffed, you know. So, so, so when we look at that, it represents opportunities, but it also represents future trends. And, and those future trends lead, in, a, in, in my mind, in a very positive business direction. You've been listening to another Biz News production. Be sure to catch all our podcasts by subscribing to Biz News Radio on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, or by visiting biznews.com. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio. Cheerio.